This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Joseph Goldstein, and this is part two of our conversation on the deeper dimensions of mindfulness. Joseph Goldstein has been leading insight and loving-kindness meditation retreats worldwide since 1974. He's a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, and the Forest Refuge. With Sounds True, Joseph has released a new book and a new audio program, Mindfulness, a Practical Guide to Awakening, in which he delves deeply into the Satipatthana Sutra and shares the wisdom of his four decades of teaching and practice. Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, is a book that will serve as a lifelong companion for anyone committed to mindful living and the realization of inner freedom. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Joseph and I spoke about the three areas covered in the Satipatthana Sutra in addition to mindfulness of the body. We talked about mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of dharmas. Joseph also unpacked what it means to be mindful of the Four Noble Truths and the Buddha's Eightfold Path. And finally, we talked about the quality of ardency and how we can bring an engaged heart to the practice of mindfulness. Here's part two of my conversation on the deeper dimensions of mindfulness with Joseph Goldstein. Joseph, to continue now, the second part of our conversation, really in celebration and wanting to draw attention to your new landmark book, in my opinion, a book that really puts a stake in the ground, if you will, in the field of mindfulness. The book's called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. And it takes the reader through in quite a bit of detail, 460 pages of detail, I might add, the Satipatthana Sutra. And we were talking about how the sutra, in the first part of our conversation, covers these four different areas of engagement for different pastures was the word that you used from the traditional Pali word. And we talked a little bit about mindfulness of the body. And I wanted to move on to the second area, mindfulness of feelings. Tell us a little bit about what the sutra has to say about mindfulness of feelings. In the first part, you mentioned how we have pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. And probably people can relate to this idea of pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences, but how would I know if I'm having a neutral experience? Well, it's interesting. The the, uh, the example given in the text for neutral experience is as if you're tracking an animal through the woods and you're following the track and then it goes over a rock and you don't see the track, and you pick it up on the other side. And so neutral feeling is the absence of something being either pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, and that's how usually we know it. If nothing is strikingly pleasant or, or unpleasant, there's a good chance that it's a neutral feeling. Uh, there are some stages in meditation where neutral feeling becomes predominant, and then it's very obvious what that experience is. and one of the interesting things about those stages is that for most people, neutral feeling becomes more pleasant than pleasant. 
you know, just because it's a very refined, it's a certain refined quality to it. Um, but in the beginning, it's mostly just the absence of something being either strikingly pleasant or unpleasant. Now, there's another section in this part about feelings where we become mindful of whether or not our feelings are worldly or unworldly. Can you explain that? Worldly or unworldly? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting part of the discourse that is usually not given too much attention. And I think the translation worldly and unworldly is perhaps a little unfortunate. It's not it's a little clumsy for what it means. Uh, worldly feelings are those that experience of things being pleasant, unpleasant, you know, or neutral, just our usual sense impressions. You know, we taste food and it's either pleasant or unpleasant, or we hear a sound or uh, feel a certain sensation in the body, and we experience it as being pleasant or unpleasant. So these are the worldly feelings based on sense contact. Uh, mindfulness, as I mentioned in the earlier part of the interview, mindfulness of these feelings is so important because when we're not mindful, pleasant feeling tends to uh, condition attachment, you know, and clinging to, clinging to the pleasant, and the unpleasant conditions aversion very often we don't like, we want to get rid of. Uh, neutral feeling, worldly feeling often conditions delusion, we space out. Now, the unworld, what are called the unworldly feelings has to do with those feelings that are not based on sense objects, but the feelings arise from the mental quality of renunciation. And because they arise from this quality of renunciation, pleasant feelings coming from renunciation, do not tend to clinging. As an example, the pleasant feeling associated with generosity or the pleasant feeling associated with loving kindness when we're uh, renouncing ill will. These, these pleasant feelings are unworldly in the sense that they're not leading, they, they don't condition the mind uh, towards grasping. And so they really further us on the spiritual path. This is also true of unworldly, painful feelings, unpleasant feelings. For example, through, through a certain kind of renunciation um, in meditation, we go through stages of insight that are... Um, Unpleasant. There's there's uh, unpleasant sensations in the body and unpleasant mind states, but these are actually part of the unfolding path. Uh, we are renouncing, in that sense, delusion. It's it's the result of our being mindful that we go through this terrain on the path. It's, it's a difficult time in meditation, but it's just part of the unfolding. These unworldly, unpleasant feelings don't condition aversion because there's wisdom present in the mind. Uh, maybe even a simpler example, uh, you know, sometimes on retreats we follow the eight precepts, which uh, one of them being not eating uh, solid food after the noon meal. And so based on renunciation, there might be some unpleasant feelings in the body, but actually a kind of um, happiness comes from that. Doesn't It doesn't uh, condition aversion. Um, so these are just some examples of um, feelings which don't tend, which don't tend to the unwholesome states of mind. The reason that I wanted to highlight this in the book is that sometimes people in hearing about Buddhism or hearing the teachings, uh, they kind of overemphasize the 
kind of suffering aspect, and it's as if the Buddha just taught about suffering and, you know, the importance of this heroic effort. And uh, I think it's really important to emphasize uh, that the Buddha is really talking about uh, a path of happiness. And this was a key part in his own uh, path to awakening. Uh, It said that you know, he was sitting, uh, as a young boy, he was sitting under a tree watching his father, the king, in some plowing ceremony, and spontaneously, uh, the young prince, Siddhartha, uh, this was before his enlightenment, he went into concentrated states of absorption. Later, when he had left home, when he was on his journey, you know, and as many of you know, he spent uh, six years doing these intense ascetic disciplines, great austerities, uh, you know, and really punishing the body, thinking it was a vehicle for awakening. And it said that at a certain point, he remembered how he felt as a young boy sitting under the tree going into that happy state of concentration. And it reawakened him the understanding that there is a kind of happiness and a kind of pleasure that is onward leading. These are the unworldly feelings. These are feelings that don't tend to greed, don't tend to clinging, but actually further us on the path. So it's, it's just it was, it's an interesting distinction to begin to explore. Now, Joseph, of course, isn't it possible to have pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, even of a worldly type that are sense-based, that don't lead to clinging? They're just, oh, that was a pleasant taste that I just had, you know, something like that. No clinging. Well, this, this, is, this is the whole point of mindfulness. When we're actually mindful of those worldly feelings, you know, pleasant and unpleasant, when we're mindful of them, then they, they are onward leading. And that's, that's why so much importance is given to being mindful of them. It's when we're not mindful or not aware in the moment, that's when they tend to, you know, either attachment to greed or aversion, you know, which just highlights the importance as these worldly, which are the ordinary experiences of our lives. You know, we're having these, these experiences all day long, the, the taste of things being either pleasant or unpleasant uh, or neutral. It, it highlights the importance of being mindful of them. And this is part of our practice. And then just one other thing, when you were talking about these unworldly feelings, you use this term renunciation, which I don't think that's really part of most people's working vocabulary, you know, what I'm renouncing today. Tell me a little bit, what do you mean by this term, renunciation? Well, it's true that renunciation is not uh, very popular in our culture. You know, we we don't really uh, give much value to it, but of course, uh, in the Buddhist teachings and in the, the path of awakening, renunciation plays a key role. And in fact, in the book, there's one one chapter devoted to what it means and how we can practice it. I think a good translation, which might help us understand its value, if we if we think of renunciation as non-addiction, you know, that I think we can all easily understand the value of not being addicted to things. Uh, And really that's what renunciation means. It means letting go of our addiction to whatever it might be, whether it's the addiction to sense pleasures or addiction to, you know, fame or wealth or, drugs or alcohol, whatever it may be. Uh, I think everybody has an intuitive sense of uh, the suffering of addiction and the easeful freedom of a mind that is not addicted. And that's really what renunciation means. It just means letting go of that clinging, letting go of that grasping. Okay, moving to the next area that the Satipatthana Sutra points us to, becoming Mindful of our mind. Tell us a little bit about what the sutra says in this section. 
Uh, this is uh, really, in some way, the simplest section, uh, where the Buddha is directing us simply to be aware of the quality in our mind. And, for example, to know, the, as it says, the lustful mind is lustful, the, and the non-lustful or the non-greedy mind is not lustful, not greedy. You know, the angry mind is angry, the non-angry mind is not angry, and so forth. Uh, what's particularly valuable in this section of the teaching is the Buddha is saying that we should simply be mindful of whatever state is present. And so it's all inclusive. Right? We really are just stepping back and seeing what it is that's present. Uh, and so it takes a lot of the struggle out of the practice because instead of fighting with what might be going on in our minds, the instruction is to simply be mindful of it. Oh, there's, there's greed in the mind. Greed, greed. There's anger in the mind. Anger. The mind is concentrated. Concentration, concentration. You know, we're simply acknowledging the mind is like this. Uh, one aspect of this which is worth mentioning, I think, is that very often we uh, hear the instruction to be mindful of the difficult states. And we often overlook the importance of being mindful of the easeful states. And so here the Buddha is saying, just be mindful when the mind is concentrated. We want to be mindful of the concentrated mind. We want to be mindful of the mind free of greed. What is that like? Because all of these mind states are conditioned. They're all arising out of causes. They all are passing away. And so it's just the general awareness. One might say of the affective tone in the mind. You know, just the quality of the mind in any moment. We pay attention to it in order to see, as, as mentioned earlier with the body, its impermanent nature. Whatever, whatever the state is, if it has the nature to arise, it will also pass away. And that's what we want to see. I can imagine a listener at this point, Joseph, potentially feeling a little bit confused, to be honest with you, thinking to themselves, God, you know, I thought mindfulness was kind of simple. I thought it was this thing where I was just sort of paying attention to what was happening in my sensory field at any given moment, you know, paying attention to what was happening in my body. That's the way I've always sort of heard it described, non-judgmentally accepting whatever's happening in my body in the moment. And now there are all of these different dimensions or pastures or ways of being mindful, different types of mindfulness. I, I'm getting kind of confused. What would you say to that mm -hmm. person? Well, in this discourse, the Buddha is laying out all of these many ways of being mindful. Um, and each one brings a certain richness to our understanding of who we are, of, of who we are as a human being, because we have all of these dimensions. But it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to put all of these different instructions into practice. In fact, focusing on any one instruction will really serve the purpose. Uh, if we were mind just practicing mindfulness of the body, that would take us all the way to enlightenment. We could practice just being mindful of the mind if that was our inclination. That would take us all the way. And so the Buddha is presenting the, the fullness, you know, the range of possibilities. And then we have to see in exploring the discourse and exploring all the teachings um, and exploring different methods that teachers have, you know, evolved over these centuries. Uh, we just have to see which resonates with us and which we, uh, which we feel drawn to. It's not that we have to have them all in place um, for the path to unfold.
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, in the final section of the book, Mindfulness, A Guide to Awakening, you focus on mindfulness of dharmas. And this is actually the largest section of the book. It's a, you know, more than two-thirds of the book is this type of mindfulness towards what you call these basic organizing principles of the Buddha's teachings. And you go into quite some detail about the five hindrances, the aggregates, the six sense spheres, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. And to help our listeners get an introduction to this part of the Satipatthana Sutra, Joseph, I'm going to let you choose one of these teachings <laughs> this time that you think would be helpful for people to really get a sense of the sutra. Uh, well, <laughs> it's a challenging, challenging choice because uh, they all are so rich in their own way. Um, but I think I'll pass over the hindrances since we've talked a little bit about working, you know, with greed and aversion and noticing restlessness, things like that. Um, and maybe pass over the factors of awakening a little bit. They're hard to pass over because these are the very qualities of the mind, like mindfulness and investigation and rapture and calm and concentration, uh, which need to be developed on the path. But we have touched a little bit on some of them. Um, I think maybe I'll uh, just point to the Four Noble Truths, since in some way this is the heart of the Buddhist teaching. You know, and, and even among the many different traditions of Buddhism, uh, all would agree that the Four Noble Truths uh, are the central core you know, and, and different traditions have uh, elaborated this and developed other practices based on them, but all agree uh, that this is this is a central the central teaching of the Buddha. So the first of the noble truths is the Pali term is the truth of dukkha. Now dukkha is. Uh, a very hard word to translate into English because it has a variety of meanings. Very commonly, we see it translated as the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. You know, in the Buddhist statement that all conditioned things are dukkha, that all conditioned things are suffering. It's not such a good translation because that doesn't really resonate with our lived experience. You know, there are many things in our lives that we don't feel as suffering, that we feel is quite agreeable and pleasant and enjoyable. So I think it's important to explore, which I do quite a bit in the book, uh, the broader meaning of this term dukkha. Uh, there's, there's an example which I use um, in the book. Uh, if that word is unpacked etymologically, one of the derivations uh, it's broken up into the root and then the suffix. So the root do is, well, that's actually the prefix. Do means difficult. And then ka is the, suff- is the root. In this particular case, one of the meanings is, is it refers to the empty axle hole of a wheel. You know, the, the wheel has a hole that the axle goes into, and it, that kind of holds everything together and allows the vehicle uh, to move. Well, it's very interesting. Dukkha means an ill-fitting axle. 
And some years ago, I was in Burma. I was visiting that country, the home temple of uh, sort of the grandfather of one of our lineages, Mahasi Sayadaw. And part of the journey was in an ox cart. And the first time I had ridden in an ox cart. And it was a visceral experience of dukkha, an ill-fitting axle. You know, it was a very bumpy ride. And so one way of understanding dukkha is not only or not limited to the meaning of suffering, but it means that because things are impermanent, there's nothing which is capable of giving us a lasting peace, a lasting satisfaction in this world of change. And so fundamentally, conditioned phenomena uh, are unreliable or they're unsatisfying or there's a certain vulnerability in the experience of continual change. So that's a much more expansive meaning of dukkha and the first noble truth. The Buddha is saying, whatever arises in our experience cannot be satisfying because it is of the very nature to change. And when we're very attentive, we see that things, in fact, are changing very, very rapidly. In fact, sometimes so rapidly that we're not seeing the change. As, you know, it might be if we're watching a film and not seeing the separate frames of the film. Uh, but everything is in this constant movement. So that is the first noble truth. It's the recognition of this inherent unreliability of changing phenomena. The second noble truth is the cause, and here we might uh, emphasize the meaning of dukkha as suffering or difficulty, the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering, is craving or attachment. And it makes sense. If we are attached to that which in its nature changes, then when it changes, to the degree that we're attached, then we'll suffer, we'll be ill at ease. If we're attached to youth, we suffer as we get old. If we're attached to health, we suffer as we get ill. If we're attached to summer, we don't feel happy in winter. And the examples go on and on. And it's really just common sense. You know, if we're holding on, and especially if we're holding on tightly to that which in its very nature is changing, then as it changes, because we're grasping, it's going to be the cause of a lot of distress. So this is the second noble truth. You know, craving is the cause of dukkha. The third noble truth is the end of dukkha. And this is the realization, we could say, of freedom, of nibbana, of peace, of the highest happiness. And often people will ask, well, what is nibbana? You know, and this is a question uh, uh, that has been asked for thousands of years in different different of the schools of Buddhism have different interpretations. One of the uh, statements that Buddha made about this, which I particularly resonate with, is one that is the most pragmatic. You know, it's not it's not a great metaphysical statement. Uh, there are places where the Buddha says the uprooting of greed and hatred and delusion is Nibbana, the mind that is free from these defilements. And I like that because we can get a momentary taste of it, even if we haven't you know, experienced the full realization of it. We can see the ease, the coolness, the peace, all the words that the Buddha often uses to describe Nibbana, you know, the, the refuge, the islands, many, many terms. Even if we haven't fully realized it, 
we can get a taste of it in every moment that the mind is free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. And it's worth paying attention to those moments. You're paying attention to the coolness of the mind. It gives us a glimpse of what the possibility is. And then the fourth noble truth uh, is the path leading to this ease, to this freedom. And this is uh, the Buddhist teachings on the Eightfold Path, you know, the eight components of our journey. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just mention them briefly because there's an importance in seeing that they touch every aspect of our lives. It's not just about meditation. It's about living fully in our life with awareness, with mindfulness. You know, so there's right understanding, which is the wisdom mind, you know, of understanding both the law of karma, that things have consequences, that our actions have consequences, and also seeing the changing, unreliable nature. There's the step of right thought, you know, which is the cultivation of renunciation, and on the positive side of generosity and love and wisdom and compassion. And then there are the steps of living wisely in the world. The right understanding, the right thought, the right speech, right action, right livelihood. You know, I'm talking about applying mindfulness, uh, just choosing different particular practices that resonate one of the most powerful ones is the practice of right speech. Just this would transform our lives if we really uh, gave it significant attention. We speak so much in the course of a day, but how much attention do we pay to the motivation, to the quality of our speech? Uh, so that's a big arena of the path. And right livelihood. You know, are we undertaking our livelihood with the spirit of service? Uh, the spirits of friendliness, and then the the qualities of mind of the path of developing right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And so in this fourth noble truth, the Buddha just lays out uh, the path before us. It's, it's a very, a very uh, comprehensive teaching, these four noble truths. And as I say, it's, it's really the heart of the Buddha's uh, teaching on awakening. Joseph, in this last section of the Satipatthana Sutra, where we're focusing on mindfulness of dharmas, help me understand what mindfulness means in this context. I mean, it sounds more like we're contemplating these teachings, these truths. It's more like a contemplation. Well, it's both. I think mindfulness in, the set, in, in its meaning of remembering I think it's about calling to mind, you know, so it's learning, it's learning uh, these particular categories, conceptual categories that the Buddha uh, laid out, uh, but not simply for the purpose of learning the concepts, but then it's actually putting them into practice. So each one of these, for example, we want to be mindful of the truth of dukkha that is experiencing the truth of it moment to moment. So it's not just knowing that, oh yes, this was the first noble truth the Buddha taught us, but rather, okay, how can I be mindful of it in my moment to moment experience? You know, and the same thing with all the others. How can I practice? How can I see? Directly, not not simply conceptually. Through mindfulness, how can I see that craving indeed is the cause of distress? You know, so so we actually are turning our attention to our lives to see how this is playing out. Uh, I'll give you an example just of, of putting the third noble truth into direct practice. And again, this is the experience or the practice of it in a momentary way. Very interesting experiment to watch the mind when it's caught up in some wanting. 
you know, this happens many times a day. This is just the ordinary course of our lives. Uh, you know, we, we might want certain kinds of food or certain experiences. Uh, there's something I call catalog consciousness. You know, it's what happens when we get a catalog in the mail and we make the mistake of opening it. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the things I've noticed is that even if I don't particularly want anything, I keep turning the pages wanting to want. <laughs> I, keep, I keep turning the pages in case or hoping that there will be something I want. And so this, this wanting mind, you know, comes up very often. It's just a common part of our experience. So the exercise would be to pay attention to what, if we can be mindful that it's present at any particular time, to be mindful of what it's like. What does it feel like when the mind is wanting? You know, so we're really paying attention to the felt experience of it. And then we're mindful. And at a certain point, the wanting goes away because it's impermanent like everything else. And then to pay attention to the quality of the mind that is now free of wanting. And right in that transition, going from wanting to not wanting, right in that transition, we can get a taste of the first two noble truths, the dukkha of wanting, and of the third noble truth and the fourth, the peace, even if it's momentary, the peace of not wanting. So this is a very this can be a very direct experience for us. Uh, and so this is what it means to put these teachings actually into practice, not simply you know remembering what the Buddha said about the four noble truths, but but doing them. Joseph, in the very beginning of the first part of our conversation, you offered a working definition of mindfulness that took mindfulness beyond simply being in the present moment, which is how some people define it. You took us much deeper. And I thought it might be good to review that original definition that you offered in light now of our conversation where you've given us this overview of the Satipatthana Sutra. Do you think you could do that for us? Well, I'll try. Uh, and I think it is useful kind of to wrap, to wrap all of this in an understanding of what mindfulness means. Because in the Sutta, the Buddha pointed out all of these different ways of being mindful, different objects of mindfulness, you know, whether it's different elements of the body, either sensations or movement or activities. You know, the, the feeling states, whether we experience things as pleasant or unpleasant, the different mind states, uh, and of all these different categories of experience. Mindfulness means that whatever the object is, and, you know, there's this broad range of possibilities, that we are present, that's, that's the foundation. We are, we are in the present moment with what's arising, whether it's in the body, whether it's in the mind, whether it's internal, whether it's external, we are in the present moment noticing what it is that's arising. So there's that noticing quality, but it's noticing or being aware in a particular way. That is, we're noticing what's arising. We might say, and this is one of the, the common definitions of mindfulness, with bare attention. That is, we're noticing what's there without judgment, without reactivity, without grasping, without pushing away. And so even if we are being aware of grasping itself, when we're mindful of that, we're not reactive to it. We're simply saying, oh, grasping mind is like this or aversive mind is like this. So mindfulness implies this balanced awareness, which is in the present, it knows what's arising, but without reactivity. And if reactivity is there, we become mindful of that in a non-reactive way. 
So it's really the way of paying attention. It's a particular way of paying attention. It's a way of being in the present moment. It's not black lab consciousness. It's, It's more mindful. There's this one word that you brought up in the beginning of the book that I wanted to have you comment on here as we end our conversation, because I thought it was so interesting, which is you talked about how one of the mental qualities that's really necessary for walking this path is this need to be ardent. We need to develop our ardency. We need to be ardent. And I thought, wow, this is a word I don't hear very often being ardent. What do you mean by that? And why do we need to be ardent? Well, I, I, I had a, a sense that that's the word you were going to pick out, because it is, it is a very interesting word, and it comes right out of the text. I mean, this is a translation of a word that the Buddha used. And as I was going through the discourse, you know, carefully, word by word, line by line, uh, it's that word kind of jumped out for me as well. Uh, and it was interesting to explore exactly what it does mean, you know. And I took as a starting point just the quality, uh, the qualities uh, that, that are part of that word in English, you know, kind of order. This, it suggests a kind of warmth and passion for something. It's not disinterested. Uh, so there's an aliveness and a connectedness with what's happening. All of this is implied for me in the word ardent. It also implies a sense of commitment and perseverance. It's something we, we have ardor about something we value, you know, and one of the, one of the meanings of ardor and it was related to love. You know, it's uh, something we have love for or passion for. And this is really all imbued. You know, this quality is all part of uh, or contained within mindfulness or comes along with mindfulness. Or we say we have to practice mindfulness with this quality, you know, where we really appreciate the tremendous value of this development. In a way, I think we're often um, misled by the term mindfulness itself because, at least for me, in English, the term mindfulness uh, seems a little prosaic. You know, it it doesn't, on the surface of things, uh, seem to inspire much ardor you know, it's very different than words like love or compassion or peace uh, or freedom. You know, these words, these words uh, sort of really can inspire us. Mindfulness seems like such an ordinary word, and as I say, prosaic, and, which is precisely why I felt it was so important to go into the depth of its meaning. Because in simply reading the English word, we might overlook the incredible richness of what the state of mind, the quality of the heart and mind of being mindful, what that's like. And this quality of ardency both allows us to explore the meaning of mindfulness in its fullness and in its depth, and it's also a quality of mindfulness. So the order itself becomes stronger as we practice. Now I just have one final question for you, Joseph, which is in the very beginning, back part one of our conversation, you talked about the importance of the depth of the tradition of mindfulness being kept alive, at least by some people who are able to really communicate it and teach it. And I'd be curious to know if you feel that long retreat practice, I know at 
the Insight Meditation Society, you offer a three-month retreat every year for participants. Do you feel that this type of long retreat practice is really a requirement for people to explore the depths of mindfulness? Well, I would certainly say it's a support. You know, it it provides an opportunity for um, an in-depth practice uh, of the continuity of mindfulness. You know, as we talked about earlier, uh, it's it's an environment in which there aren't many distractions and removed from the busyness of our lives so that we can uh, devote ourselves you know, and practice and cultivate this ardent quality of mindfulness throughout the day. Uh, so it's definitely a support, and it, it helps develop many of the factors of awakening that I briefly referred to. Uh, but not everybody has the opportunity to go on a three-month retreat. Although one of the interesting things is to see how many people, even without you know, many worldly resources, um, if they have it as a priority, and it may take many years of planning, you know, and the help of scholarship funds and all of that, but very you know, people living in ordinary, busy lives, it's amazing how many somehow have found the way, you know, to experience this. But even if that is not possible for some, uh, one of my teachers uh, was a woman in India uh, who, she was married, she had four children, she was totally engaged, you know, in her worldly life. But she had an amazing order for practice. She didn't have the opportunity to go on long retreats. And she was a student of my first teacher, Manindraji. And he taught her how to be mindful in her everyday life with whatever she was doing. You know, she was cooking or taking care of the house or the life of an Indian housewife. And because she had so much ardor for the practice, she really put it into practice. It wasn't just an idea, oh, I'll try and be mindful. She brought a huge commitment and energy to it. She she attained really quite high stages of awakening through that kind of practice. And so, you know, we have to work with the situation that's possible for us. Um, and, of course, retreat time is very valuable especially in in our culture, which is so fast-paced and we're so busy, to just remove ourselves for some time from that is is a huge relief. Uh, In fact, I'm about to start on uh, my annual self-retreat, which I do every year, just as a way of stepping back from the busyness of my life and continuing to cultivate the practice. And if it's not possible you know, doing a daily practice, daily sitting practice, and then having an ardency for applying the practice, applying mindfulness, applying investigation in the course of our lives bears tremendous fruit. Joseph, any final words you'd like to say about your new book and your hopes for it, if you will, as it takes wings in the world? Well, as as you know, it, there was a it's a big book, and there was a tremendous amount of work involved in it. Uh, and I I just appreciate having uh, put that work into it, and seeing it, seeing the final product, uh, and just there's so much material in it, you know, and in some ways it's so comprehensive and so many different elements of the Buddhist teachings. Um, And with it, I as well as going through the the sutta in a very careful, you know, and precise way, I also share a lot of uh, 
personal stories from my own practice and the ups and downs over these last 40 years as I've, as I've put these teachings into practice. Um, and it was interesting. I was just, uh, just the other day, um, my, my mind was just going through some kind of little uh, uh, ripple about something, and now I don't even remember what. And I just opened the book. You know, see, see okay. Uh, I was surprised just in reading, you know, reading something that I put so much work into, uh, that I found it helpful for myself, just rereading it, because the Buddhist teachings are so uh, exact and so precise and so helpful. So I just, I just had a renewed appreciation for the power of the teachings and the possibility of, of being reminded to put them into practice in our lives. I've been speaking with Joseph Goldstein. He's published a new book with Sounds True called Mindfulness, a practical guide to awakening. Also an audio program called Mindfulness, Six Guided Practices for Awakening. As well, we've worked with Joseph to put together the 47 lectures that he gave on the Satipatthana Sutra. It's 38 hours of teachings And it's in a series, an audio series called Abiding in Mindfulness, Volume 1, 2, and 3. Joseph, I mentioned this to you during the break, but I want to say it to our listeners too. You're such a generous teacher. You really take the time to unpack things and make things clear. And you're really a learner advocate the way that you speak and teach. And and I really appreciate that. It's... It's such important work that you make that bridge from the depth of your experience to new people who are discovering mindfulness. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. It's really a joy to be sharing your teachings. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.